Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Yola. The acclaimed British singer and songwriter has released two albums on Dan Auerbach's Easy Eye Sound label, both of which were produced by the Black Keys frontman. She was nominated for four Grammy Awards for 2019, including Best New Artist, and is a sometime collaborator with the supergroup The High Women alongside Brandi Carlisle, Natalie Hemby, Marin Morris, and Amanda Shires. Yola joins us in a few moments to chat about her life as a songwriter and artist. Part one. Well, for uh, any of our listeners who might happen to also be Grammy voters, we are in Grammy season yep. yet again. It is the season. It's that time of year. They call it Grammy season. Halloween's coming up. They call it spooky season. Uh, you know, we got a lot of seasons happening right now. Yep. Um, and uh, by the way, Paul, congratulations to you because there's quite a few things in the Grammy running uh, that you're involved with uh, as a songwriter. So well, it's quite preliminary. It's so. preliminary, but, you know, first round, I mean, you're not going to make the second round if you're not in the first round. So That's a good point. And uh, I think you're going to be uh, in the final round personally, but, you know, we'll see. Um, I, I will take your prediction as a prediction. Yeah, it's take it for exactly <laughs> what it is, my friend. Um, but we on this episode, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Yola, who's yeah. a, a fantastic singer songwriter, um, really a, a unique talent that has sort of been put in the Americana um, genre almost because Americana is the catch-all and she's really kind of uh, unclassifiable in some ways. Um, but Yola, uh, was up for the best new artist Grammy, um, in for the, for the 2020 Grammy year. And, um, she, um, was up against some stiff competition. Billie Eilish wound up going home with that, uh, trophy. Lil Nas X, was it a trophy? Did they give you a trophy? Uh, uh, yeah. (laughs) It's either that or like a jacket, (laughs) like a a blazer, letterman jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lil Nas X was in there. Um, you know, and it was, it was some stiff competition and it kind of got us talking a little bit about when you look back at the best new artist. Grammy category. It's always interesting to see who won best new artist that particular year. Um, and who didn't, Yeah, you know, that was nominated and, and how history has come to, to view that maybe differently than it, than it was at the time. Well, yeah. I mean, some of them you look at and you go, well, yeah, obviously that was the best new artist of that year. If you're looking at the sixties, seventies, eighties, and there are times you look at the runners up and you're like, oh wow, they, I guess they didn't see the potential of that artist that, that we now see in <laughs> retrospect. But you know, you see some, I mean, I'm, I'm looking all the way back uh, to 1965, the Beatles won best new artist in 1965. That seems right. appropriate. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I think if they'd given it to anyone else, it would have been a miscarriage of justice. Right, that would have been a little weird. But, you know, you fast forward a little bit and and you see in 1970, you say, okay, Crosby, Stills, and Nash won Best New Artist. And that also makes sense, right? Yeah. But now I'm looking at the runners-up. And Led Zeppelin had a chance to win (laughs) Best New Artist that year. Right. And now you go, oh, (laughs) now there's a debate. Yeah. There's a debate to be had. Yeah. And and those are kind of fun. I mean, And Chicago. Chicago And Chicago as well. I mean, I... 
I think Led Zeppelin and Crosby, Stills, and Nash would come out ahead of Chicago in terms of long-term impact and things right. like that. But seriously, that's a that is a pretty big, you know. And and then the next year, the Carpenters won Best New Artist, and they beat out a little guy named Elton John. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Which and I again, mean the Carpenters huge run of hits, but it's almost like the timing's unfortunate. It's if you phrase it a different way and you said, "Hey, Elton John had a chance to win Best New Artist in 1971 and didn't." You're yeah. like, "What? Like, what? Yeah, what happened?" Yeah. Well, in looking at another era in 1992, Mark Cohn, you know, Walking yeah. in Memphis, Silver Thunderbird, the guy had some some great songs. He beat out Boys to Men. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, in terms of like actual music uh mark Cohn might be a little bit more my cup of tea yeah but boys to men i mean became like a complete cultural force absolutely yeah you know you look back a few years before that in 1990 when millie vanilli won best new artist and yes. right now i see the recipient and their name is crossed out and it just says none <laughs> right. and i'm like let's say that i'm the indigo girls right one of the runners up and i'm thinking hey you weren't going to give any of us best new artists. Like you, just, you get rid of Millie Vanilli, and now there's no best new artist that year. Right? Yeah. No, could like, nobody win that? Yeah. Award? Whoever got the second most votes could. I also think it's interesting that Tone Loke, Nina Cherry, Soul to Soul, and the Indigo Girls were the competition for Millie Vanilli. Uh, you know, it's it's funny sometimes when you look at who gets nominated and to think, oh, it's funny those two artists were yeah. nominated for uh, the same Grammy. Like the Black Crows were up for it in 1991, but got beaten by Mariah Carey. Yeah. You know, feels like a very different type of, you know, act. And it's hard to put yourself back in that mindset and to remember what it felt like in 1996 and to see Hootie and the Blowfish, who were just all over the place on yeah. the cover of every magazine. And in retrospect, you're like, wow, Hootie over Alanis Morissette. For best right. new artist, that right. seems to me that seems a little crazy, but it's hard for me to put myself back in that 1996 mindset. Maybe it made sense. I I suppose it made sense then. Well, and you look at 1979, right, or, or or the late 70s in general. I mean, I would say the late 70s in general were uh, interesting. Like 1977, the Starland Vocal Band won best <laughs> new afternoon artist. delight. Yeah, beating yeah. out Boston. Wow. Uh, 1978, Debbie Boone got it, beating out Foreigner. Uh, 1979, <laughs> A Taste of Honey won Best New Artist, and the competition against A Taste of Honey included The Cars, Toto, and Elvis Costello. Jeez. <laughs> I, I'm just still stunned that there was an award that Debbie Boone and Foreigner were both up for at the same time. That's... I, I hear they're doing a collaboration album, which oh, uh, finally. I'm really excited about. You know, uh, 1999 is where I see there might have been one of the stiffest you know competitions ever. Lauren Hill won, which makes all the sense in the world. Right. Um, but up against Backstreet Boys, Andrea Bocelli, which is super interesting, Dixie Chicks, and then Natalie Imbruglia, who I don't know if everybody's is as familiar with her work, but at the time yeah. she was kind of everywhere too. Well, but, nothing's right. She's torn. <laughs> that's pretty good. Good Natalie and Brulia joke. But Andrea Bocelli yeah. up against Lauren Hill for best new artist. <laughs> that's interesting to think about them sharing the same yeah. category. How do you feel about Nora Jones beating out John Mayer in 2003? I like it. I'm at peace with it. Uh, I mean, I think he's been probably more commercially successful uh, since that time, yeah. but man, Nora Jones, like that album completely took over the world that year. I yeah. mean, in the context of that year, had they given that to anyone else, it would have been completely ridiculous. I also, uh, absolutely love Nora Jones. And I will hear no criticism of her. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't have any, I will but, hear none. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look back in the, in the last handful of years, the winners are people like Sam Smith, Megan Trainer, Chance the Rapper, Alessia Cara, 
Dua Lipa, Billie Eilish, um, Megan Thee Stallion. I mean, the, the, the Grammys does a great job of putting together both the nominees and the winners of this particular category, I think. And, and you know, obviously, you know, we're partial to Yola right now because right. she's a current friend of the show. Exactly. And we'd, we'd love to see her have that particular award on her mantle. But they did a great job by including her in the conversation, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I think that the fact that you're seeing the Grammys almost become uh, more representative of different types of music, um, you know, it, it's not like you look at the the nominees on some of these more recent years and go, oh, man, it's all basically like the same stuff, yeah, you know, not. in different packaging. It's it really is wide ranging. Um, but, you know, when you do look back, I mean, <laughs> 2011, Esperanza Spalding won this and yeah. I think she's fabulous. Um, the competition was uh, Justin Bieber, Drake, Florence and the Machine, Mumford and Sons. Wow. All of her competitors went on to become significantly that might more be, commercial. You know, that might like, be the toughest year in terms of competition all the way around. That's yeah. pretty incredible. And I, in, in hindsight is... 2011 no the hindsight <laughs> is is 2020 and and i'm going to go ahead and say justin bieber maybe should have won that year right um but again you don't know at the time yeah yeah you don't know so and, and i think in some ways what's interesting to me is in some of the years the folks that uh won this was particularly in the late 70s as i was just pointing out um did not uh go on to be the bigger artists sometimes right. the people who don't win the award wind up having the the greater long-term impact so that's always interesting because we've talked even on this show before about can you really evaluate something's significance right. until it's at least a few years in the past and you have enough space to really you know kind of get it well i'm just glad this award exists because for guys like us who are in the let's just say 25 and over category Mm -hmm. um, it's nice to be reminded every now and then of what's out there and what's coming up. You're 26, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, just for a few more months, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's helpful to me to have this as a guidebook to what are the kids into? Yeah. <laughs> what, what's, what are the young people saying today about the, the music the new slang? Yeah. Uh, I will say that, um, as I breeze through this list, uh, the only songcraft guest, uh, that we've had actually two that I see, um, who were named Best New Artist. Jose Feliciano mm -hmm. uh, was Best New Artist in 1969. And, uh, of course, David Crosby as part of Crosby, Sills & Nash in 1970. And we've actually got uh, an interview coming up with Paula Cole, yep. uh, which will be airing soon, that uh, she won it in, in 1998. I actually have to say um, that looking through this, I think we got to get some more, some more Best New Artists Agreed. on here. Um, particularly people who were best new artists uh, years ago and have gone on to uh, to even bigger and better things. And Scott, you're a you're a Grammy voter. I am. So maybe we could get you to like talk to somebody in there to to appeal to our generation and have a best old artist award. I like that best old artist. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll call up Mr. Grammy and see, uh, <laughs> you know, what they think. Okay. Well, good luck. Part two. Singer-songwriter Yola made a major splash at the 2020 Grammy ceremony with four nominations, Best Americana Album, Best American Roots Performance and Best American Roots Song for her composition Far Away Look, and Best New Artist in the General category alongside Lizzo, Lil Nas X, and Billie Eilish. Dubbed by many as a country soul singer, the British artist's breakthrough came when she teamed up with Black Keys frontman Dan Auerbach in Nashville to write and record her debut solo album, Walk Through Fire, on which she and Auerbach collaborated with a roster of Southern soul songwriters including Dan Penn and Memphis studio legend Bobby Wood. She was subsequently nominated for Emerging Artist of the Year and Album of the Year at the 2019 Americana Music Awards and Honors.
Though her emergence might have seemed like an overnight success to some, Yola had been working in music in the UK as a vocalist and collaborator with DJs and producers, including Massive Attack. In 2009, she was a writer on Hopes and Fears, a single by UK singer Will Young, and in 2013, she co-wrote the top 10 UK hit Turn Back Time by Sub Focus, on which she also sang an uncredited vocal. Additionally, Yola sang lead on the top 5 UK pop hit Won't Look Back by Duke DeMont. In the wake of her success with the Walk Through Fire album, Yola re-teamed with Auerbach on her most recent release, Stand For Myself, featuring highlights such as diamond-studded shoes and dancing away in tears. Her accolades continue having won Artist of the Year honors at the 2020 UK Americana Awards and earning a 2021 nomination from the CMA for the International Achievement Award. Earlier this month, she played a sold-out show with Chris Stapleton at Madison Square Garden. Yola, welcome to Songcraft. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's great speaking with you. Um, even though I am based in Los Angeles, uh, I actually grew up in Nashville, which has kind of become your home base uh, in, in recent years. And, you know, Nashville is such a songwriter town. Obviously, there are songwriting scenes in other places, but it's it's such a dominant part of, of Nashville's identity. Um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on just how living in that kind of environment, soaking up that environment where songwriting and songwriters are really valued, um, what impact has that had on you as a songwriter, as a creative person, just having the opportunity to be in that kind of setting? Well, um, this is something I was talking to a friend about this recently, that like, I didn't just kind of stumble upon these skills, you know, in the recent year or two, almost like a decent proportion of like a song like Break the Bow, for example, um, was written in 2013 and then just finished in 2020, Yeah, <laughs> you know? like I kind of didn't have the ability to write it's just I wasn't in the space where the skill of writing was taken seriously <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a thing that was held aloft as like lyrics and melody are king in this town um, yeah but um I've, I don't know why um it's different in some places but maybe it's just the nature of the artist and like co-write or collaborators but in spaces that I'd been in in the past it was very much like um people that you know played chords decided that they had as an influential role than the person that wrote lyrics and melody um on a social hierarchy kind of level and so there's something really different about living in a place where that really puts at the very height of things, lyrics and melody. And like when you have an idea in your head and the value of that idea in your head, um, that 
and the kind of retrospectively figuring out if the melody's this, then the chords must be this. So the key must be this. So, <laughs> you know, that whole process of like going deep into the psyche to farm out things that have been, you know, gestating for such a long time is like the lifeblood of where I live right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that's really, really meaningful because I didn't start as an instrumentalist. I play guitar now. Um, uh, but I, I didn't do that to start with, but I always had songs in my head and it wasn't till I came here that I realized that you didn't need to be like, I don't know, Steve bloody Vi or something <laughs> like you didn't need to be just like some kind of shredathon to be like a songwriter like you know it, you needed to have the concept the idea and uh, indeed a lot of people that are songwriters might be relatively perfunctory guitar players or keyboard players you know yeah and but it's more to do with the idea it's the intellectual property that is king and if you have that within you then getting that out by any means necessary is the stuff Nashville's made of. Right, right. And so I needed to be here. Um, I, it's, it, was, it spoke to me in a way that was like nurturing of my creative muscle and nurturing of like my by any means necessary writing. Sometimes it comes out me just strumming a guitar and finding something. Sometimes it's an idea that I've got to... Um, retrospectively made yeah. into some form of just something and I can't always do that alone um but the fact that 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 all of that is of very high value and very respected it's like you get into a car you say you're a musician or something or an artist and it's like you've said you're a doctor in frankly any other town <laughs> <laughs> right. right you know yeah. it's like that's that's big that's <laughs> right. big you know that makes you not be in a mental state where you're second guessing your path your life choices your creative intent and all of the energy is pointed forward to creating music yeah i'm always you know fascinated to talk about ideas like inspiration and you know Asking someone where their inspiration comes from, uh, if it's musical inspiration, you can sort of connect the dots. You go, oh, yeah, I see how maybe this record influenced you or, or that record influenced you. I I'm always particularly fascinated by influences that are not necessarily musical, whether it be, you know, something that someone's reading or something that they're watching. And uh, I have seen you say that your most recent album, Stand For Myself, that you drew um, some inspiration from Issa Rae's show Insecure. And um, I mentioned I'm a Nashville native. I now live in Inglewood and Insecure is filmed like all over right by where I live. I'm always spotting my neighborhood uh, in the show. Um, and because we're talking about a TV show rather than uh, another piece of music, I'd love to hear more about what you mean by that, about how the aesthetic of that show or um, the sensibility of that show has actually impacted you as a creative person who is creating in a different medium being music. Um, well, I think um, one of the things that struck me uh, about the show was 
the lighting. And like, it's a conversation that's been um, in the um, pop culture of conversations since I suppose the movie Moonlight, um, where they were talking about the idea of like, how lighting has been really prejudiced and um, was based on a, what they call the Shirley template, which doesn't even particularly do like brunettes, like pale skinned brunette people particularly well either. Hmm. Like it's specifically for blonde hair, blue eye people. And so like, you know, when you are not blonde hair and blue eyed and uh, you want your melanin to sing as it should, like that is something that needs attention. And I felt that that attention was beautifully paid in um, that show. And there was something, the idea of, you know, something that everyone can appreciate, but that is for people of color, you know? Right. Like, that's really what that show feels like. Everyone can watch that and just get in on it and feel like like they're feeling the feelings, you know? But like, there are things that are done specifically for people of color to be like, we see you, you know? And yeah. like, that was inspiring to me, not just on the nuances of like, making sure that everyone's hue sings, like we've all been in photo shoots and things like that where we feel like we look like an absolute like an open casket funeral because huh. they don't know they don't know how to light your melanin they don't know how to really make your backlight sing and right. so that was one thing i was like everything looks really beautiful and i was just like that's really and they're not like overdressing anything anything like you know Issa Rae's first flat still is that first flat, you know, it's not like the unrealistic friends apartment in New York, you know? <laughs> right, right. Where it's like really dramatically, you know, massive, you know, like, but it's just that every, every hue has done its justice. And like, there doesn't, there isn't any toxic content for black women as well. I can watch this thing and not think, feel like I'm being erased from a narrative or that I'm being tropified because I'm dark, you know? And hmm. that was something that was really wonderfully healing. I don't think I realized how much I needed it when I was watching it. Um, just that idea of like, just life, life while, while, you know, a black lady in the world, Yeah, you know, you know, and, and it's not like, like some soap opera of drama and ridiculousness. It's not like some, it's, 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 it's something that you feasibly feel like you're living yourself. Yeah. You know, and that was, and that was just felt, that felt necessary. I didn't mm -hmm. feel like there was a load of representations of black women in ways that were nuanced or that had any kind of character depth at all. I was just like, like dark skinned women with character depth. And I was like, oh, I'm really struggling like for like mainstream movies or television shows that I was exposed to growing up yeah. in the UK. Or, I've only really moved here since like 2020. <laughs> right. And so, you know, like it's like, it's somewhat of a new experience for me even being here and seeing how things are different. But the entirety of my absorption of that show 
was just a, a continuing will to, to, to talk about life as it is and display the nuance of black femininity and hmm. the and the full story and and I suppose then to look on my story and and try and tell that with some depth and some honesty and yeah. and really tackle things that are that are may, maybe exclusively mine and maybe through being maybe more exclusively mine um maybe even more applicable broadly than any effort I would make to be general. Well, you've said that the Stand For Myself album kind of charts this path of, of self-realization with the beginning of Barely Alive, which you've talked about as being kind of addressing the idea of tokenism or, or being othered um, all the way through to Stand For Myself, the final track, which is more of the self-actualization moment. together this record was that a a conscious journey that you were trying to to write about as one album statement or is this the type of thing where you kind of look back on the finished record and go oh this is this is what this means now that I put it all together I guess what I'm really asking is is from a writing perspective was there kind of a a grand design as you were putting these songs together or was it more of a realization after the fact that you'd been writing about yourself and then realized how it all fit together a bit of both. Um, I think um, I try and write through my lens as accurately as I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I try and be as observational as I can be, um, and as honest about like how that reflect reflects and relates to me. So even if I'm not talking about myself specifically, like in a song like Diamond Studded Shoes when I'm, I'm talking about um, our previous prime minister in the UK, um, I'm still kind of, this is still through the lens of my opinion and how I feel and the things that still to this day, you know, piss me off, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so like, I want it to be something that I can stand by and I can sing again and again and go, no, I still feel this way actually. Yeah, I yeah. still this still carries, and so there need to be salient points. And so often when I'm writing something, I'll be like, "Ah, could I say something that kind of hurts a bit more to say? Maybe that's going to be truer, huh. or maybe I'll say something that feels as though it's like something that I've I've been trying to hide from myself." And maybe yeah. I need to say something like that. Or maybe I used to be scared to, to talk on a certain subject. And now I feel free to speak on a certain subject. And so, um, yeah, they're like that. It's so to do with my process of, you know, trying to find spaces where I feel safe enough to create in the mm. first place um, that... Uh, 
it was inevitably going to reflect my experiences. Each song was going to reflect my experience of, of moving through this space. And then when I put all these things together, it sounds like a journey because I've been writing about my journey as I've been doing the journey. Ah, interesting. <laughs> and so like, I've, it's almost like a diary entry almost. And so, yeah, like that's kind of, it's not exactly autobiographical, but you know, it's like these songs are, are snapshots and how I've been feeling and right. how that's been changing as I moved away from the UK to the US as I've curated my company, as I've learned how to navigate the idea of like professional boundaries, personal boundaries, all these things that I've struggled with in the past. Hmm. And so then when you look back, you go, oh, look, <laughs> that's what I was doing. But then I was like, of course, that's what I was doing, because I've kind of been taking like creative snapshots of my life for the past, I don't know, like maybe nine years, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in the songwriting side of things. Cause you've been writing for a long time and I'd be curious if anything stands out in your mind from when you were growing up. Um, obviously everybody knows who, who sings the songs, but was there ever a moment for you where you kind of realized, Oh, this, this person writes these songs or, or there is a songwriter behind the scenes and you kind of started thinking, oh, I, I think maybe I could, could do that as well. I'd be interested in, in, in writing. Um, I don't think I ever saw them separately. When I first, um, like, I suppose, started thinking of music as a calling, which was very, very early in my youth, um, I was always, like, um, under the assumption that they would come hand in hand. I didn't even necessarily need like a, a role model to tell me this is how it's gonna happen or oh, like the writing or they're separate um, in some way or um, I just really felt like that the most authentic thing for me would be to learn how to express myself through poetry and then through melody. Yeah. And I don't know why that was so early, but like it was really early, like four, five, that kind of age. And like, I, I remember seeing artists like Dolly and her kind of prolific writing and the, the autonomy that she fought for, you know, and that was, that was a great example of someone doing that job. Yeah. And in the singer-songwriter guys and but I don't think I even really understood that if that wasn't always like going to be the case that sometimes you wouldn't write the song and I think even when I found out that other people might have written a song and someone covered it or they wrote it for somebody or whatever like in my mind that was them and their life my life was that I was going to be writing <laughs> That right. was never really under dis like negotiation or discussion. Like I, I needed to, I needed to express, um, what was my life experience growing up in this village and being like beat nigh on to death for having dark skin. Like I needed an outlet. So this wasn't like an optional thing, you know, mm. this was like, 
like something that helped me process my environment, you know, of fighting. Yeah, it's kind of the difference between aspiring to be an entertainer versus aspiring to express yourself through art. Yeah, and like that was definitely part of it. Like, it wasn't the whole story, though. I know there's a lot of people who speak on, like, trauma and the therapizing through music. But there was something else that was un undescribable about my connection to the artistic form that I suppose I attributed later to my Ghanaian heritage and that, that the tribe that I um, have, uh, that is of my lineage, um, um, has a reputation for art throughout millennia, like mm. specifically the arts and specifically music. And so when I say to anyone, oh, by the way, I got family that are gar and they're like, oh, well, then that explains everything. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> You've uh, did you, you, you would have barely had a choice at this point. It's probably a clean 2000 years of just that. So good luck fighting that inclination off. <laughs> right. and I'm like, great, cool. Well, it's nice to know I had a choice, but I never felt <laughs> Yeah. I never felt like it was going to leave me. Like, even when I lost my voice or all the kind of drama of just life and trying to come up in the industry, I never felt like I didn't have access to it or that it was going to leave me. Or, you know, even in this lockdown where people aren't doing it and they start struggling with their sense of an identity outside of music, I'm like, I felt like I just was it. And so I didn't really have to fight to attain it or to find it. It was just always going to be within me. Right. And I think that's something that I, like, I really benefit from um, with the, my, lin my Ghanaian lineage. I think, I don't think I'm the only person to have felt that, that's African. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that gives you, like, another thing to balance it off. It's not just that sense of, you know, that need to express because of your environment. It's all there's something even more foundational to your being that feels that it feels natural. And I was good at loads of other things. I got great grades. <laughs> it's just that I wanted to do this. This felt like right. the best use of my skill and my intellect and, you know, all of these things. Well, you spent the early part of your music career as a vocalist um, with DJs and producers, including Massive Attack, um, singing sessions, um, but also pretty early on, Emerging as a writer, you were uh, a writer on Hopes and Fears, uh, a single by UK singer Will Young in, in 2009. You were a writer on the top 10 UK hit Turn Back Time by Sub Focus. I'd be curious to get some insights into how your approach 
to writing in those early days was kind of shaped and and formed as you got into, you know, doing it, as you say, I don't think you were playing, you know, guitar back then. You was sort of more in this context of the producer and and studio type work. Um, would love to hear a bit about how you developed your writing and who you were as a writer in that particular context, which is different than what you're doing now. Yeah, um, I felt like a like a like a gun for hire. Hmm. That's really what it was. It was like often I get a call from a management company of some description. They'd have an artist, like a DJ producer. They had um, what, um, some backing tracks and beats, things like that, that they knew um, like were going down well in clubs, but they wanted a vocal for it. And just to kind of allow it to maybe chart instead of just being instrumental. And so I get calls like this to kind of come and help um, sometimes as part of a writing team, sometimes as the sole writer, uh, sometimes as th the vocal deliverer, sometimes as a guide vocalist, as well as writer, um, for somebody else to sing. And more often than not, I'd sing it and they want me to be the featured artist. And I'm like, but this isn't like my life. Right. <laughs> this is your artist's life. I don't want to start my life on your artist's brand <laughs> hmm. and their direction and their idea of who they are and so i would often like just be interested in being a writer and if i did do the vocals i would ask to not be credited as a vocalist huh. but be credited as a writer and for my writing credits to be the things that stood to the fore moreover than my vocal performances and that would be by and large so that when I decided to do what I wanted to do, I could make a decision as to what direction I went in and how I was perceived. Well, in 2016, you released uh, a solo EP called Orphan Offering. Talk a bit about as you approach that project. Now, you know, you are the artist. It is your name, you know, front and center. You're not a, a gun for hire anymore. Um, talk a bit about what you wanted to accomplish artistically as a, a writer and artist with that kind of first statement uh, of, hey, here I am, this is this is me, this is who I am. Um, well, this EP was pretty strategic. Um, um, I kind of wanted to put out something that essentially functioned as a work tape. Um, I went into the studio I found some players, I produced this thing. Um, I wanted every wave to be this wonderfully high quality wave. I wanted everything sonically to be lush and even, but I didn't want it to sound like a fully produced work because I didn't want to begin until I was ready to begin. And so hmm. the function of it was very much this, this bare bones, but like, lush sounding thing um i was i consult for ages on finding the cello sound that i wanted most because that's not a bass an upright bass that's a cello but huh. um i modeled um a lot of that cello sound on the agnes obel album aventine hmm. and uh which was a real 
uh, just an inspiration for like alternatively arranged albums and works. Um, yeah, and so that was a really big part of it. It was um, maybe processing some things I wasn't ready to speak about and, uh, um, but most importantly, pr producing something that was just vulnerable enough for people to know that I'm, I'm arriving as myself and yeah. somewhat uncluttered. And I think like songs like Dead and Gone, like they speak to a part of my life when I was just horribly depressed. And I was like, who honestly, like you just want my skill set, but you don't want me. And I remember watching like, uh, I think it was Amy Winehouse and they were releasing some stuff that she'd kept back because she thought it wasn't good enough or whatever. And they were like, oh, well, she's dead now, so how it comes. <laughs> mm. And all this business. And I was like, wow, you literally couldn't care less. Once they're dead, it's like, let's just do this. You know, it's just, you know, this is what it is. Like your humanity is second to your com commodifiable works. And yeah. that I, that's something that felt like as a black woman, that's a really big part of your life is that you're good at loads of stuff. So everyone wants it, but they really want to separate you from the things you're good at. Something always severs, no matter the cost. A husband, a wife, or your life, or your job, or the balance I seek will be too hard to keep. If nobody cares, if I'm dead and gone If nobody cares if I'm happy at all The, out, the EP is imbued with this sense of needing to maybe escape and to find a place where that isn't the case. To yeah. find a place where like this real sense of home and being nurtured which i think is why that's the first track on the ep of that idea of just being in the seat of comfort and in this place where you can start creating things that are profound and meaningful and are reaching beyond maybe just the microcosm of yourself into how you see the world how you see life and you know, love and death and family and any kind of um, joy or tribulation that can ha occur mm. to you. And I think up until that point, I was very much writing about um, surviving and as opposed to thriving. Right. And that's, that's kind of where we, we land with the most recent record, I suppose, is that um, I'm, I'm no longer talking about just this sense of survival and pain. Like, yeah, yeah. Jo joy is mandatory. But that, in that first sense, I needed to at least set out my stall um, as something completely unencumbered and to see that I can write a song with no frills and I'm not hiding behind anything. Yeah. Um, and also that I had to do everything. I had to like choose songs that I'd written on my own 
I had to choose, um, uh, I had to kind of choose ones I knew how I wanted to conceive of them so I could produce them and be in the mix and understand what shapes I wanted in the master and all of these kinds of things. Because I knew the second that there was a white guy anywhere near me, they'd be absolutely thirsty beyond anything to attribute my hard work to literally anyone but me. And ah. so I was like, I'm gonna do all of it. And I'll be like, there's an engineer and obviously the engineer knows what they're doing. And the mix engineer also knows a massive amount of what they're doing, but I'm consulting on everything. I'm yeah. in there, um, you know, so you can't kind of extricate me from any one part of the process. And there are huh. times that I was talking to people that they were desperately, clearly trying to do that, but they weren't even aware of it because it's just the nature of cognitive bias. And so that was like a real, the real function of that EP was to set out the stall as me as the artist and writer, and you can't extricate me from the process, no matter how right. hard you try. Right, there, there's not, um, you've essentially established yourself, you've put your stake in the ground, so to speak, so that people can't, in retrospect, go back and say, oh, this is a studio creation, or this is the contributions of so-and-so. It's like, nope, here it is. This is... This is me, I've documented it, and it's my kind of opening statement in a way. Yeah, and there'll be people that will reference that EP and go, well, actually, this song's really legit. I never really, like, because it's, it's got no frill, bells and whistles or frills. Right. It'd be easy for you to not see the validity of something. And that's kind of, I was willing to court that. Just yeah. so that the people that were willing, that were able to see past frills would, <laughs> you know, and to go, oh, oh, she can actually just write a song. Oh, this song's actually valid and legit. And no, it doesn't have any frills. And later on, I take a song or two from that record and I do them live in like a big band way. And people go, that's really groovy. What song's that from? Um, what album's that from? I'm like, it's the EP. And they're like, no way. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, if you write a song and it's it works and it stands up, you kind of, you, you know, you give it the full on production and Bob's your uncle, you have a pretty groovy song and right. like it's a that's, that's exactly what happened with break the bow that was like something that i conceived in small scale and is on my most current album i you know in i i started that in 2013 there's this kind of phenomenon that you know once an artist has uh, a breakthrough then everybody acts like oh they came out of nowhere and you know in in 2009 you certainly had a, a breakthrough moment um with your debut album, Walk Through Fire, on Dan Arbach's uh, Easy Eye Sound label. Uh, ultimately earned you four Grammy nominations, that record. Um, and, you know, you'd, you'd been in the business for probably 15 years uh, at, at that point. And, but it is that sort of like, oh, who, who's this, you know? Um, but that, that kind of moment, um, as a writer, talk about sort of the, the gratification of, of getting um, the accolades for your work. And then also just what I would imagine are kind of the mixed feelings of like, man, I've, I've, I've been here, <laughs> I've been doing it, you know? Well, um, it's a, it's a funny, um, feeling because the gratification that I had was real. I definitely cried 
for, you know, probably a clear day of just intermittent tears um, because it felt like I'd finally done something that someone had seen. And we speak on this whole concept of visibility, you know, and how important that is, you know, and I'd felt unseen for such a long time. And so that was really meaningful, really valuable. Yeah. Um, um, also, like being in the best new artist category in that year of 2019, and or 2020 as it was, I was nominated in 19 for the awards in 2020. And like that whole year was such a hard year <laughs> to even get into that category because like there are people that had already had number ones at debut, you know, um, which right. it wasn't, I've come to understand it wasn't the most common thing to have like more than a couple people who had charted in these ways. Um, and so that became like this real badge of honor of this. You got into this category on not like a massive amount of money, not right. any sense of like daddy's bank account or not any sense of, you know, having like major label backing or anything like that. You've really done this with blood, sweat and tears. And that was really meaningful. Um, yeah. I also then realized that I was grateful that I didn't have any sense of recognition before this point. Because up until this point, I wasn't in an environment that I would have liked to have perpetuated. Like when you, all the people that get signed and make all their money when they're 23 are stuck with all the people that they knew when they were 23. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I would not, I would, I'd give the money back to get out of that situation. <laughs> <Right. laughs> and so like, it was like, it, it, I was like crying for a whole other reason of just relief that it was now and that I knew that I was at least going to be able to curate my situation as time went on and have some sense of autonomy as time went on. Even at that point of those nominations um, and like, and especially just four, I, I wasn't expecting that. Like... <laughs> That's like a lot, okay? <laughs> for number one, for like one try and like a poor person, like that's just a lot, okay? <laughs> that's not something that you just think, yeah, sure, no big deal. That was, that It really like emotionally, it was a lot to deal with for yeah. quite a while. And even at that point that I hadn't fully like self-actualized. Huh. I didn't know anybody in America, yeah, or I was getting to know people in America at that time, you know? I had met, like, some very good friends of mine now, but I'd met, like, Natalie Hemby and Brandy Carlyle. Um, earlier that year, we collaborated, they'd heard the record, they were like, we're so about it, can you just, we'll bring you here, just come into this session, let's do something, like, you, you slay please come and slay here. And so yeah. <laughs> like that was like, I made some really great friendships that have really stood the test of time and deepened. And But I didn't have that. I didn't have just the time yet, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And so like, 
I was still kind of like, it still felt like it wasn't, it wasn't the most that I could do, you know? Yeah. And yeah. because I was like, I haven't got the, I just, I haven't fully been able to kind of use all the ideas that I've kept sat on that I know have fire about them. Um, I think it's just my, my, the, sh the, the sheer level of work that I was doing that has made me that present and that, that I, I'm being recognized for that. But I yeah. was like, and, and, and the quality of the work, you know, for sure. But like, I was like, there's more in the tank. Like it was, it was, it was important to be recognized and then to be, to use that to kind of plow on, to broaden my scope. And so I can write, write with people that, you know, have maybe lived something like I've lived and right. can help me finish an idea that I started a gazillion years ago or, you know, um, retweak a lyric of something that's so personal, they're going to need to be right inside my head. Yeah, you know, because yeah. I like to be collaborative. I like to bounce things off people at the very least, even if I've mostly written it. <laughs> right. Like I really like a sounding board. And so, yeah, like it was just, it was really, really like emotional for very different reasons. But there wasn't yeah. much of that sense of, oh, I've been doing this for ages. I was like, thank God it wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank God the nightmare situations I could have been in, the myriad <laughs> different permutations of Hellmouth I could have been right. freaking inhabiting is second to none. And so, yeah, yeah, I was just, I was just grateful upon grateful. And I was still in the process of working out my situation and finding my people, my tribe, if you will. And right. like, which only really like came to a kind of full circle, you know, in recent months, <laughs> Yeah, you know? And, uh, but it's, it was all part of the process and it felt like, like a, a reward for a very, very grueling schedule that, you right. know, almost took, took me clean out. I felt like a bag of crap for quite a long time after mm. the 2019 cycle. And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about, you know, writing with other people and, and bouncing things off other people. And, and, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, diamond studded shoes earlier, but Natalie Hemby is, is one of the writers on that song. And I think she's on like a good five or so, uh, songs on the, on the recent record. And it's kind of a spot that if you're comparing that record to the 2019 record, you see, uh, Bobby Wood popping up a lot. And, you know, Bobby is a legendary piano player, musician with the Memphis boys. Um, amazing. Uh, Natalie also amazing, very different types of, of writers. Um, and obviously, you know, you and, and, uh, Dan Auerbach are, are kind of the consistent thread that we see through these writing credits. But I find it interesting that there's kind of that Bobby on the last album and Natalie on this album are kind of like the recurring, uh, guest writers. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how writing with different people, brings out different parts of your personality as a writer and, and how having the opportunity to shake it up and, and work with um, people who bring different things to the table also sparks your own creativity. Yeah, well, um, I really felt like with the, with the first record, um, like I hadn't really met anybody. And so it was very much like Dan's black book. And 
all the people he'd met and the relationships that he had that I was able to have access to. And so, like, I, I wouldn't know how to call Dan Penn. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the number, but Dan <laughs> does. Um, Dan Auerbach did. And so he was like, it was like every day was just a new surprise of a person. I never knew who was coming into the studio each huh. day that we were writing. It was just that it was a surprise. And so that whole like part of my writing process was like reacting to the environment. And I think we all were. And it came off almost more as a collaboration as a result than necessarily my baby, because I wasn't in a position where it could be, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so I was, I was meeting everyone in the middle and still contributing what I could contribute and all as usual as a collaborative writer that I've been for years and years. But like, it was emotionally a very different process to making this record. Um, yeah. Mostly because it was about, and again, Bobby turns up again. <laughs> Don't you worry about Bobby, he's got skills. <laughs> 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 You'll find him, don't you worry. Um, and, and he makes a wonderful um, entrance in here with Starlight, so we're ever right. grateful. But by this point, I know why I'm writing with Bobby <laughs> creatively, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm like, instead of like, oh, hi, I've never met you. I know of you because dot, 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 but like, this is this record. I can be like, ooh, yeah, let's do something with Bobby. <laughs> So I could really kind of like do a lot more cherry picking like right. of, of things I wanted and where and like people when I would write with them, like how they'd make me feel. And I found with like Natalie Hemby that I could take like ideas to her and she was so completely open about like what the song was. Like she'd never put anything on the song. She just wanted the song to exist and to discover it. And she was extremely comfortable in pivoting her role from being a starter of a song, like with Dancing Away in Tears, or a finisher of a song, like um, Stand For Myself or Diamond Studded Shoes, where I'd started them in 2017, before I'd met any of these people, <laughs> or 2018, and you know, got like the bones of a song and played it out at gigs, you know, and then been right. like, there's something missing or it needs a bridge or it needs a something, um, or it needs another verse or, you know, like, but when it came to like, or like, I just need to kind of get the, the second verse flowing in all realism. I always have a first verse and a chorus. <laughs> yeah. So much of the time. And then I'm like, second verse, oh dear, someone help me. <laughs> like, I've started it. I feel like I know where I'm going. Can we just like, I've got line one. Can we get two, three, and four? Just come on, help, help me. And like, there right. was a lot of, there was a lot of that, you know? 
yeah, a lot of yeah. help help me and so like for because some of this like my co-writers couldn't write because it's about Englishness for example in diamond studded huh. shoes or whatever so <laughs> I'm talking about like um Theresa May and they might not know about her diamond right. studded shoes and the whole situation. So I really have to bring <laughs> a lot of this content and then explain this content that I've brought to, to bring it to fruition. We are the poets, the Roman Learning our reserves of courage and working just to make it all right when we know it is. We know it is. We know it is. We know it is. It ain't gonna turn out right. We know it is. We know it is. Oh, look, we know it is. That's why we got to fight. And so, like, it was like me and Aaron Lee Tasjan um, in his living room, um, just like talking about the hot mess that was our respective countries. And like then him playing this and then me going right i've got something for that (laughs) and then coming up with that playing it out at a few shows around the uk and being like "Ooh, this is missing something i'm just gonna put this back until i can figure out what the next bit was and it was like it didn't have a chorus and then finally like what it did it had like a pre-chorus kind of thing but it didn't have the fight bit and so that fight bit came later and I was like, ooh, well, that's useful. Well, uh, it feels like it's almost finished, but I feel like the lyrics need a tweak. And so then it becomes this whole, what are we going to do? Let's tweak some of these lyrics. Help me with the second verse. Create me a third verse. Let's do this. And yeah. so that was like, that's so my process so much of the time is like Diamond Studies Shoes is a really good example of like my process. It's interesting to me that you you talk about sort of the British... Um, perspective in terms of the lyrics, because, you know, I listened to a song like Far Away Look on the on the previous record. And, you know, it's got the elements of what I think people would call Americana in terms of it's got those rootsy elements. But it also has kind of this 60s Britpop thing I hear, like a little bit of Lulu or, or Dusty Springfield. projecting or is that kind of part of your not a bit you're not projecting one bit you've nailed it to the floor and so few people talk about this in recorded podcasts and i don't know why (laughs) it's so rare people go like you listen to that song and i go is that a country song and they'd be like no actually like actually like what can you what what tells you this is a country song they're like do you know, I just can't, I can't, now I listen to Far Away Look, I can't really hear anything that I would say that's a country song, not even like new country or of any kind, like right. it's hard to kind of place it. And I go, so is this a soul song? And they're like, no, no, not really, no. And so then I get people in this kind of space where they're like, they're like, okay, so what is this? And then wait a minute, this is quite like, 
it's closer to like again like the wall of sound stuff and dusty and like dare be so bold to say even Shirley Bassey at times more than huh, interesting you know more than you know country or soul yeah <laughs> and yeah. so like it was an interesting thing like someone kind of dubbing me and me then like accepting I suppose the moniker of queen of country soul whilst then delivering a single that was neither country nor soul <laughs> right <laughs> and i'm like you better get used to this kind of philosophy i call myself a cross genre artist for a reason it's because i want to be able to release exactly what i want and so right. and to create what i want um in as free as beck is you know to do as he pleases i would like to exercise the same freedom um yeah and so like yeah, like it, it feels like people just like they they hear what they want to hear and they see what they want to see and you can just release whatever you like and it will it'll find its place. But that was hmm. very, very Britpop and yeah. not an accident at all, you know? Like to kind of when when I hear this, especially with like a Pat McLaughlin idea, he always come with like a little something, like a like a section of something that he wants you to elaborate on, and right. and he'll play you a bunch of stuff, and you'll be like, nah, not that one isn't me. That might be for someone else. That one isn't me either. But that one is. Give me yeah. that. Okay, can we work on that? I know it's just a, a <laughs> like this little bit, but I've got something for that. So it was like I like. It would speak to me, you know, those yeah. kinds of ideas. Um, and he'd be like, I can't get anyone to sing these things. They're like giant wall of sound kind of like, you know, bassy-esque vocals. And I'm like, that's me. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's me. That's, 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 you've been looking for a Brit that sings big. Right. Well, then, yeah. hi, my name's Yola. Nice to meet you. And so... <laughs> You're like, hey, let me sing a James Bond theme over here. Yeah, <laughs> could I please? I am British. Let me do what I'm <laughs> supposed to do. And so yeah. it's like, that's kind of the part that informs why my music sounds the way that it does. Why it sounds like a this with a bit of something else that you can't put your finger on. It's probably something English. And yeah. <laughs> and and that, that, that sense of... Um, how we absorb music became a really important part to my writing because um, like the people, certainly of my generation, we grew up with genreless radio. We grew, we grew up with playlists going entirely across genre as a complete norm. And so like this record reflects my growing up environment what it was like in the UK and what it sounded like. There'll be melodies that people will go, oh, that's got a pedestal on it. So that feels country to me, like with a song or whatever you want. But I'll be like, but listen to the melody. Does that remind you right. of something? And they'll be like, it's kind of almost like, you know, Stone roses -y. I'm like, yeah, that's like modern mm. Britpop melody. But yeah. there are some pedestals in the background. <laughs> So there's yeah. there's always, every time you look at something that you think you understand the one thing that's influencing it, there's always a second thing at least. And right. that's right. really what I want with, I, I want my, my music to be hybrid like this. Because that's, 
I see, I only see the connectivity in music and the connectivity in genre. And so sure. like, it's, it's something that I can't avoid when I'm writing. Well, I would say that there couldn't possibly be a better album title than stand for myself based on what you are expressing in terms of not being bound by anyone's particular box. They might want to put you in. And it really is um, a, a fabulous record. There's so many interesting influences woven into it. And uh, Yola, I just want to thank you for spending some time with us today to share a little bit about this record and about your overall career and, and processes has been a, a really interesting conversation. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.